Welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also the host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to doctors without borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Don Berwick. He's a clinical professor of pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's the former head of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and the co-founder of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. Welcome, Don, to season seven of Fixing Healthcare. Pleasure to be with you, Robbie. This season is dedicated to breaking the rules. And I can't think of anyone in American healthcare who's done more to break the rules on behalf of patients than yourself. And the rules I'm talking about aren't the ones found in textbooks or learned in academic lecture halls. And they're not the legal or regulatory ones. They're the ones you and I learned in medical school and residency training. We learned it by observing our senior residents and the attending physicians. Most of these rules were never spoken and none are written down but all are communicated effectively. We know that it's a rule because we can observe nearly all doctors across the country doing them, but when the data says there are better ways, the rule persists and change rarely happens. So let's begin with your commitment to patient safety. Doctors take an oath to first do no harm, and we tell each other we never inflict harm, but you broke that unwritten rule the rule never to admit how much harm we do. How did you become aware of our nation's failures and how did you set out to address them? I think actually most clinicians, physicians, nurses, pharmacists are well aware of the amount of injury that occurs to patients because of errors in their care. Um, It's part of a normal experience. I can easily recall patients in which there were mistakes um, I think that it came home to me, especially uh, when uh, I had the unfortunate experience of my wife's serious illness um, in the mid-1990s when I could observe firsthand uh, accompanying her uh, error after error after error, problem after problem um, every day. Uh, but I was already aware of it. Um, I think the, the, the other side of that problem is the way we're trained as clinicians to deal with hazard which is through heroism. I was taught romantically that it's my patient and if something goes well, it's my success. If something goes badly, it's my problem. And so we personalize mishaps and that's not scientifically correct. Uh, most injuries to patients like most, most hazards in any situation are systemic. They, they, they're built into the way that the things flow. And this myth that somehow it all depends on the individual is a hard myth to break because I was trained in, in, in modern approaches to improvement systems thinking and, and ways to think about interdependency. I, I, I became able to see the problem of patient safety as a systemic issue, which can only be fixed through systemic uh, changes. 
those are very hard to achieve, but it's the only route. You know, Don, you left the Harvard Community Health Plan early in your career and co-founded IHI. Why did you do that? And what were your goals? Well, IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, was the brainchild of a group of people, friends of mine and I, who had begun meeting regularly, all one way or another, uh, formally responsible for improving healthcare in our local organizations. We were all spread all over the country. We had independently discovered the work of some of the giants outside healthcare who had thought about how to improve uh, products and services, W. Edwards Deming, Joe Duran, a group of Japanese scholars. And we became convinced that there was a lot known about how to improve complex environments, complex systems uh, that was not being used in healthcare. Uh, basically, we decided to try to prove that. It began with a demonstration project that uh, my colleague, my new colleague, Bland Godfrey, who was the head of quality for Bell Laboratories, and I cooked up to see if we introduced uh, experts from outside healthcare to healthcare organizations. Could they help? Could they begin to identify some of the problems and help fix them? That demonstration project lasted about a year and a half. It was extremely successful. The answer was yes. Uh, the scientific improvement could work in healthcare with appropriate adaptation. And then this group of friends and I be, uh, began to see the need for some kind of a nonprofit uh, home for advancing um, will ideas and execution around uh, continuous improvement. That became IHI. Nonprofit started in 1991, still exists, um, very vibrant, national international now. It's uh, all over the globe. In fact, I just gave a speech virtually in Australia to the IHI British Medical Journal Forum on, um, on uh, quality improvement and patient safety uh, in healthcare. And there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world attending that, that forum in Sydney. Um, so it, it, it took off and uh, there, there's a lot of interest. It is still an uphill battle, Robbie, as you know better than anybody. It's making these changes to actually make healthcare what it needs to be um, is very, very hard. This is why I'm so interested in this rule-breaking notion. I mean, you talked about looking outside of medicine and bringing in experts who are not doctors, not even clinicians, not even trained in science necessarily, or at least the science of bio biology. You did it. What allowed you to do it when it seems so difficult to happen inside the medical profession. Friendship and colleagueship uh, explains any success that I've had with that. It, it's, I've never done anything alone. It's with a group of people like you, Robbie, who understand that we've got to make changes. Our oath, as you, as you said, needs to be honored. And that's only gonna be done if we change the way we deliver care. I think that the, uh, the lesson I learned early on is that the receptivity in the workforce is enormous. Once offered the opportunity to improve the work they do, to get really involved in you know, all the dimensions of excellence. Uh, the vast majority of people in healthcare, doctors, patients, uh, nurses, uh, pharmacists, they really wanna make changes. And, and if you can drill down to that energy, uh, you can have success. One of, one of the most dramatic positive experiences in my career, I think, was the 100,000 Lives campaign back in 2004. The architect was my colleague still, Joe McCannon, but we developed the idea of trying to mobilize uh, energy throughout the nation in hospitals to adopt a relatively simple set of changes that would save lives by improving processes, by, by, by standardizing and 
spreading practices that did that worked. Well, within, oh, barely six months, we had over 3,000 American hospitals enrolled in that project. And the energy level was, it was really thrilling. It was moving. Um, and so there's some, there, I, th I think, Robbie, there's a um, will in the workforce to work on making things better systemically that, that can be unleashed through proper leadership. And that, I think, if, if there's any secret of success in IHI, that's been it. And it's a lot of it's volunteer volunteerism. You know, it, this is not about big, you know, industrial efforts. It's about uh, letting people help, uh, and the volunteer energies, not just in the U.S. but around the world, for improvement are enormous. That's what IHI I think has has been able to tap into. Not alone. There are many others that have done that, but it's um, it's extraordinary. I think also uh, adhering to the science. I, I don't want to give too much gloss to this, but there are scientific foundations for making things better. Um, understanding systems and working at a systemic level instead of, as I said, individual heroism, using data properly. We misuse data all the time in healthcare. We don't use it to help illuminate uh, variation and, and how things are going. We use it to, to make judgments or to provide incentives and rewards, which I think is bankrupt. Uh, information can really help unleash knowledge. And that's part of the plan. Part of it is learning to cooperate. We are so fragmented, so broken apart in healthcare, but you can't improve patient journeys without high levels of respect and cooperation across many, many boundaries. And that's been very difficult to achieve, partly due to our financing system. And then, um, uh, you know, we refer to in our field PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act. That, that's just a little, uh, it's a um, mnemonic to help remember that you improve by trying things. You improve by getting, you, you learn to ride a bicycle by getting on the bicycle. And healthy organizations are always, always trying new things, uh, reflect on what they've learned from it. Everyone's involved. This is what I call the science of improvement. And it involves, uh, leadership who understand it and then allow it to, to thrive. That's probably the biggest problem is leadership focused on improvement. I still believe that most clinicians, even though they see the medical errors, they believe that they're doing the best that's humanly possible. And I think that contributes to this reticence to engage in the types of quality improvements, even though their hearts are in the right place. I think the actions change, but I'm interested in understanding how did you come up with such an audacious goal? A hundred thousand lives. You could have said 10,000 lives, or you could have said something else that would seem more easily, easy to accomplish. Um, how did you have the audacity to set your target so high? The evidence we had on uh, the rate of injuries to patients was pretty secure, Robbie. Uh, I had been a, a member of the National Academy of Medicine Institute of Medicine Committee that wrote Crossing the Quality Chasm, <clears throat> the report before that to Air as Human, thanks to pretty systematic research around the country, research uh, led by Dr. Howard Hyatt, his colleagues in the Harvard Medical Practice Study, excellent work going on in Europe and Australia, we had plenty of evidence about the rates of injury and they are extremely high. No one knows exactly how many patients die each year from mistakes in their care, but it's, it's in the hundreds of thousands probably in the United States. And we, by, by the time of our campaign, the 100,000 lives campaign, we had, we had the National Academy of Medicine 
um, report, which summarized a vast literature, and, and that number was supportable. Well, true, but how did you think you could get more than 10% improvement rather than 90% or 100%? Back of the envelope calculations, uh, first to your earlier comment about, about clinicians, yeah, I, I think clinicians do feel they're doing their best, and the reason is they are doing their best. They're, tr- they're really, they're normal human beings, flawed, frail people in, in difficult contexts, trying as hard as they can. The quality improvement science says trying harder is, is, is the wrong plan. It can't work. You're already trying as hard as you can. The problem is you're in a context which doesn't allow you to be reliable. People are getting ventilator pneumonias because we don't have a total system for management of ventilation. According to modern science, we people get central line infections because we don't, we don't, we haven't organized the system to support reliable application of preventive uh, steps that prevent, effectively prevent central line infections. Uh, and and by, by 2004, when we launched this campaign, we had the evidence, we could see from work that IHI had done, not just in the US, but around the world, that hospital by hospital, clinic by clinic, we could see the results. We had hospitals by then that had zero ventilator pneumonias for two years running. We had hospitals that were approaching zero for central line infections. Uh, we knew from Australia that rapid response teams we're changing the profile of out of ICU cardiac arrest. So we had the data. And when we extrapolated that data to, the, to a, our massive healthcare system in the US, uh, that you know, 100,000 lives, it came into view, it came into reach. Uh, was it a, for sure? No. Was it exact? No. Uh, even to this day, we don't have an exact number of the number of lives that probably were saved by that campaign, but we had the data, Robbie. We still have the data. And so uh, the, the trick is, to learn to think systemically. It's for, for clinicians to understand that they are citizens in complex environments much bigger than themselves. And only when we get involved in uh, buoyantly, happily, joyfully, get involved in celebrating and, and working in those interdependencies with the support of leaders uh, can we make progress. It's really frustrating to try to be a hero all the time. It doesn't work. As part of the campaign, Don, you gave one of if not the most moving speeches I've ever heard. You said, and I quote, the names of the patients whose lives we save can never be known. Our contribution will be what we did, what did not happen to them. And though they are unknown, we will know that mothers and fathers are graduations and weddings they would have missed. And their grandchildren will know grandparents that might never have known. And holidays will be taken and work completed and books read and symphonies heard and gardens tended that without our work would never have been. You know, the rule that we follow as doctors is that all that matters is the patient in front of us. And you broke that from my perspective by focusing on the people left behind. A lot, what gave you that insight? What led you to do that? Prevention is always hard uh, for the reason that I mentioned in that paragraph. You don't, you don't actually know what doesn't happen. But once, you're, once you bring a scientific lens to this problem of excellence and, and, and get honest about the data, you can see it, you can see the harm. And so for me, it, it wasn't that hard a, a step, Robbie. I mean, it, it's, I could see the harm. And I guess I, back to personal experience, reflecting on my personal experience as a patient or a, or a loved one of a patient, I could see it. I could see the injuries in, in my own experience. So can we all. I've, I've given many speeches about safety and 
it stuns me. I think, Robbie, that this has been your experience also. When you're in an audience, when you're speaking to an audience of a thousand or two thousand people, and you say, "Who here has personal experience of a complication or error in healthcare that could have been avoided in yourself or a loved one?" Every hand goes up. Every hand goes up. And so I, I'm just one of the crowd here. People that have experienced this and say, "No, enough is enough. We 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 need to stop this." I still think it was brilliant to have focused on all these other impact people and the impact that it has upon them. Because as you say, we, we don't value necessarily the preventive services for some of the reasons we say, but the idea of how wide the impact of safety can be, at least I found that moving and motivating. And every time I hear your speech, tears literally well up in my eyes. So. I just think it was a brilliant idea. And again, as a rule breaker, you can see past the expectations that we have, the limitations we place to how it's going to really resonate with people. And I, I think that was a major part of the success you had, taking it outside of the individual to the grandparents, to the children, to the other people who will be left behind, not just the harm to this one patient, but the impact it has on a family and loved ones in an entire community. You've been one of the real voices in the country, Robbie, uh, reminding us about that personal side to the care, and it's there. Uh, a quick story, uh, during the 100,000 Lives campaign, um, my young staff at IHI, on their own initiative, uh, rented a bus, shrink-wrapped it with logos from the campaign, and then drove the bus across the country, uh, holding rallies in cities, I think there were 15 or so stops, with the, with the healthcare community of the city coming together to celebrate and commit to the 100,000 Lives campaign. Uh, when that bus got to Badger Stadium uh, in, in Wisconsin, I think it was, uh, they drove into the stadium and the uh, staff, hundreds of staff from the local hospitals were there. And what they had done was outline 1,200 seats in the stadium with the yellow balloons. And this was their symbol of the number of lives they could save uh, in, their, in their geographic area if they committed fully to the 100,000 Lives campaign. They brought it home together as, as, as a community uh, with a visible image. And I talk about tears. I mean, every time I see that slide, I just uh, I choke up a little. That will was there at the start. And what the campaign did was mobilize it. And that's the secret of improvement. That's, that's what happens when you you do this right. Just so beautiful. You, you mentioned prevention. I want to ask you about that rule that we have that intervention is more important than prevention. You know, if it weren't for that rule, we, we would control hypertension 90% of the time, screen for colon cancer 90% of the time, pay primary care doctors far more than we do today. How do we go about, as an American society, breaking that rule? I don't know, Robbie. It's... Um... We're in a hammerlock right now. Uh, the the uh, incumbent financial system is so deeply invested in the technologies and processes of acute care, some of which are miraculous. Lives are saved every day by by you know organ transplants and heart surgery and and advanced chemotherapy that we should never give up, never ever give up. But in order to uh, support uh, that technocracy, we've developed a financial architecture that is confiscatory. It takes everybody's money. 
and talk about breaking rules. It, uh, the, the rules for payment, the rules for uh, profit, for greed, that allow greed to enter the system are costing us dearly. And, and I think the incumbent system doesn't want to change. It doesn't, doesn't want to see that money shift. We know where to put it. Early childhood development, uh, strong education systems, uh, workplaces that thrive, uh, supports to, lonely, to elders to avoid loneliness, community infrastructures like food security and transportation security and housing security, uh, anti-racism, uh, reform criminal justice. We know, we know where that money should go if we really wanna be a healthy nation, but we starve the infrastructures that could produce health in order to support the massive architecture of intervention. Some of that must be retained. We need to do every surgery that works, but the greed, the, the, the pricing games, the market concentration, the, the, um, the, 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 the acquisitiveness of the system, it's just, it's eating us alive. And we won't have the energy or resources to devote to prevention until we break that, that, that hammer lock. And I don't know how to do it. It's political. And uh, unfortunately, I think we physicians and nurses who care about health are going to have to be politically active to break, to, 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 to break the, the stranglehold that this incumbency has on money right now. It's, it's, it's very, very destructive. It would be a great conversation because I believe the first step is to change how doctors and hospitals get reimbursed. And if we got reimbursed in some form of prepayment, I like the notion of capitation uh, in a way, we then would have the incentives to drive that because that's where the profit would be rather than today where it's simply related to the volume of things that we do and the intensity and that rewarding of the system, um, I think has a perverse impact upon our decisions and starting in medical school and continuing throughout our training the rest of our lives. But that's a different conversation for a different day. So let me return back to this theme of breaking the rules. You know, Don, I first met you on a trip to Sweden. Uh, we went there to, you organized the trip so that we could hear from the staff in a particular hospital and the work they were doing, the outcomes they were achieving. You know, the unwritten rule of American medicine is that we're the best in the world. We have little to learn from other nations. What was so special about that facility and its people? And what do you believe American doctors can learn from their success? I remember that trip well, uh, Robbie. Um, first, your, your basic point, we, we really need to become globalist in our thinking. It's not un-American to ask how other nations and other communities deal with health and well-being and at what price. It's instructive and we need to, to, to have the humility to do that kind of searching. You're remembering a trip to Jönköping County in Sweden. <clears throat> At that time, uh, Sweden uh, paid for its healthcare through general taxation uh, and the healthcare was provided at the county level. There were, I think, 21 counties and one of them, Jönköping County, 100 miles or so west of, of Stockholm is the highest performing of the 21 counties in Sweden, which is one of the highest performing countries in the world. Uh, they're delivering care uh, with uh, measured outcomes uh, superior to those in the United States at, ab at about half the cost. Uh, I've been there many times. I have many friends there. It's extremely high performing. It is, by the way, uh, as devoted to prevention and uh, community health as it is to uh, superb acute care. The hospital we met in, Robbie, was Rehov Hospital, which is a tertiary quaternary 
hospital that could it's the it's it's equal in performance or better than any of the best in the U.S. <laughs> um, we were trying to understand on that trip why is this difference there? Why are they spending half the money and getting much much better results? And it was hard to unlayer it. Uh, some of it had to do with salary structures and pricing. Some of it had to do with a sense of I guess what I'd call um, appropriate frugality, uh, not not spending resources that don't help people, focusing all of the all of the money on on what really helps. Uh, there's also part of the culture there in that county and maybe in the country, a kind of solidarity, a communitarianism that allows them to raise questions across boundaries and uh, optimize the system, not, not, not subsystems, optimize for, for the patient, not for the, the particle. Um, they had, you may recall, the Esther project in which the whole county, uh, 370,000 people or so, I think it was, uh, the whole county health system was focused repeatedly on the metaphor of Esther, uh, an elderly woman who had congestive heart failure and and uh, and the depression and a bunch of other burdens. Esther did not exist, but it exists. She existed in their mind, and their constant conversation was, "How will we all help Esther?" That ability to work together, uh, I think, is one of the secrets behind the superb performance of lower cost there. But it's they're not alone. I, I, I've been in many, many places around the world that are much higher functioning than American healthcare overall. Uh, but they do it with a sense of solidarity that we, we, have, we have lacked. Your earlier comment, uh, Rabia, for, for our next conversation about global budgeting and capitation, I, I could not agree with you more. You taught me that, watching what Kaiser Permanente has done it's a different kind of place. It thinks differently. It's got it's got its own problems. We know that, and it can be better. But it's able to think about duty to a population and sorting resources where the resources are needed. And that's what you saw in that Swedish visit. As as part of your answer, you made me remember a quote you or a response you gave when you were being appointed to the head of CMS, and you talked about. That there's 20 to 30 percent of healthcare that is in quotes waste, yielding no benefits to patients, and that some of the needless spending is a result of onerous, archaic regulations enforced by the agency. And I'd like to ask you about a couple of parts of that sentence. The first is the unwritten rule that I see in medicine that we believe as doctors that everything we order and do is necessary. And yet, as you point out, as much as 20 to 30% of it may not be. How do we help doctors to be able to see that 20 to 30% or at least, or let's just say more than see, but actually act upon that to eliminate that, to generate the resources that we could use in different kinds of ways? Um, it's, that's another breaking the rules issue. Um, uh, basically, there are two steps. One is we have to see the waste. And then we had to decide to get it out of there. And, and I, I, back in 2012, I wrote an article in JAMA, uh, yes, estimating 34% waste at the median in the expenditures in, the, in this country using a model that I developed with colleagues at Rand Corporation. I actually, Robbie, thinks it, think it's higher. I think we're closer to 50%, but that uh, I, I'd be happy to agree on 30 or 25 um, a recent repetition of my own research uh, by Will Schrank and colleagues uh, came up with a number around 25%. It's, a, it's big. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billion dollars, billions of dollars a year. 
Some of it is what you say. Some of it is the expenditure of money on care that cannot help. I'm not talking about futile care. I'm talking about redundant care or unscientific use of procedures and tests, for example, or visits. Um, there's, a, there's another version of this, though, when you talk about breaking the rules. I, I did write a paper uh, in JAMA called Breaking the Rules for Better Care a number of years ago based on our work at IHI with a collaborative, we, we, uh, with a network. We have a network called the Leadership Alliance, and I will uh, unashamedly issue an invitation and an, an advertisement here to anyone listening to us. Your organization ought to join the Leadership Alliance. Right now, it's about 50, 55 places. Um, uh, we did a study, uh, informal study, uh, about four or five years ago, um, in which we invited those organizations, and 24 agreed, to, uh, to break the rules. And, and what, what, what we did was we, we asked them to survey physicians, their own staff, medical and non-medical, patients, uh, and uh, visitors, staff, patients, and visitors for stupid rules that is lit right in a rule that makes no sense when you think about patient care. At least, at least it may, may have made sense one time, but it doesn't make sense now. But 24 organizations in one week harvested 360 nominees for stupid rules. Every one of those rules cost money, cost time, demoralized staff or patients, put up barriers, and had no sound logic anymore. We, we, we divided them into four categories. Uh, some were regulations like a CMS regulation or joint commission, but the other three categories were myths, things that people believed about rules that were not true, like HIPAA myths. People constantly talk about HIPAA, but HIPAA doesn't speak to what they're talking about. Uh, administrative prerogatives, uh, that is things that administrators could change without any outside reference, uh, and habits, habits, myths, and administrative prerogatives. Of the 360 stupid rules, 85% were not regulations. They were not CMS. They were not the Joint Commission. They were just stuff we do that we could stop by, by realizing what the truth is, by give, abandoning myths, by, by uh, simplifying administrative procedures. Uh, there, there are billions and billions of dollars and millions and millions of hours that could be restored to, to, to real value for patients and, and vitality for staffs so if we could just do that, wake up. It was buoyant. I mean, my goodness, the organizations involved uh, loved it. I hope they followed through um, and support that rule breaking. We repeated it, by the way, in Europe, same result. Our, our uh, alliance in, in Europe uh, had an equal number of rules there. So it's not just an American phenomenon. Let's look at the second half of the sentence. I doubt that the other leaders of CMS have ever described the agency rules as onerous and archaic. Why did you say that? And were you concerned about political consequences as a rule breaker, admitting that the agency that you're now gonna run is out of touch with reality? Um, well, first, <laughs> we had a presidential order to look at wasteful regulation. Uh, President Obama issued an order uh, to for all agencies and uh, cabinet secretariats to look for rules that made no sense. Uh, he was right on top of it, right out of the Oval Office. And so we had plenty of support politically. Uh, I remember uh, going to the staff uh, and saying, um, let's for starters, I want you to bring me 50 regulations that we should stop, 50 regulations that have no, uh, that, that, that don't help. 
uh, and there was a little grumbling and then they went away. And I, I remember it's about a week later, uh, the senior staff brought me a list of a hundred and they weren't done. Uh, we then issued a reg to take away those regulations. It was possible to do to begin to clean house. This is lean thinking. This is the Toyota production system at work. So all systems have that level of, I'll call them stupid rules or ways. They all have their defenders. They all have their history, but people can see it. And once you have leadership that says, let's stop it, you can make progress. Now, it's not all, it's, that's not easy for all rules. The, the, one of the, the rules that was nominated uh, by the uh, survey we did with our leadership alliance uh, that got the top vote around real regulations was the three-day rule for having to be in a hospital for three days before you could go into a rehabilitation setting, that's pretty dumb. And uh, that would require a serious investment uh, by CMS and possibly even statute to change. And that's a hard one. But um, most of the time it's our habits. And um, when, you bring, when you go to the workforce and you say, you know, we know you, I know you see waste and I want to help you get it out of the system. I want to help you stop it because it's, it's eroding your spirit, not just the pocketbook. The staff will do it. They, they will join you. And uh, I've seen that over and over again. Uh, and so it, it didn't really take much courage. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was ready, to, ripe and ready. And luckily, we had the president, uh, uh, the president behind it. I do believe that uh, CMS and the Labor Department were the two lead agencies for that rule changing. Yeah. A rule that we tell ourselves inside medicine is that we provide great medical care to all. And again, you've broken this rule by acknowledging that the current system actually is rationed, a word that few people want to use, but when you step back and look at it, it makes very accurate sense. Why did you break this rule about the discrepancies in the medical care we provided and what kind of response did you get when you broke it? Well, it's infuriating to see how uh, much uh, inequality and uh, racism still is manifest in the way the healthcare system is constructed and, and operates. Uh, being poor is really bad for your health in this country. And that's because we don't have the safety nets that we need for people who are at disadvantage. Uh, being a person of color in this country is hard on your health. And it's because we haven't addressed the generators of that kind of inequity. We're starting to, uh, the Biden administration has been relentless in its continuous focus on equity as a theme for its work and I commend them for it. But we really have a long way to go. Uh, I, you know, I personally don't believe we have to ration care, uh, not if we're wasting 25 to 50% of the money. We got plenty of money to give everybody all the care that they, they could help them. What we do right now is we ration people to care. We say because you're, you live in this place or because your color of the skin is dark or because you have little money, you can't get what others, what others get. Uh, and it's uh, offensive, it's wrong, it's morally incorrect, and it's technically incorrect. And by the way, it's bad for the economy. And we, and the, 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 the uh, basic commitment we need to get that solved in America is to solidarity, equity, and, and mutuality for all. We're all in this. One of the arenas that caught my attention since I was in the administration, for example, is the criminal justice system. A travesty, it's a travesty. We, we, we incarcerate more people in this country per capita than 
any other developed country on earth by far. They are seven to one ratio of black, seven five to one ratio of Latino. Um, and uh, it, it is as uh, Michelle Alexander's brilliant book talks about, it's the new Jim Crow. It is extremely expensive. And from the viewpoint of the oath we took as clinicians, dead wrong, because 70% of the people in our prisons and jails have mental illness or problems with substance use. And we need it. If we had a healing preventive uh, uh, approach, a restorative approach, reentry approach to that, we would have much less incarceration, much healthier people and lower cost. Don, earlier you discussed the inequity in healthcare and how the Biden administration is focusing on, you know, helping improve care among minority communities. Having grown up in rural Iowa, I know one group that often feels forgotten about is the poor rural white communities. These communities often has less and less jobs, lower incomes, issues with meth and alcohol, schools that are falling apart, are far away from any grocery stores, doctor's offices, and hospitals. Uh, what is being done currently to address the health inequities in these communities? And if you were put in charge of improving the health care of these poor rural communities, what would you do? Well, di disadvantage is not, uh, is not racial only. Uh, rurality and the kind of exclusion you're talking about also afflicts the health and well-being of people. We need to find where deprivation exists, where people are not, don't have what they need be that food or transportation or broadband and make, make an investment, envision a country of equity, including the equity you're talking about, Jeremy, one of the most costly misunderstandings, lies out there is that somehow the interests of the, of the disadvantaged white people in this country are in conflict with the interests of the disadvantaged people of color. They are not, they're the same interest. And I abhor, I reject, I cannot accept the demagogues who thrive on creating division. So were I in charge, which I'm not, I would say we have got to have a sense of stewardship, of responsibility for people who are at disadvantage. You know, uh, there's a quote from, I think it's Saint-Exupéry, the author of, uh, of the, the, the Little Prince, that I, if I wonder if I can remember it. It's um, to, to become a man, he, I think that was, that's gendered, but to become an adult, what he meant is to accept responsibility for redressing harms that you did not cause. Uh, and I deeply believe that. So the community you just talked about, Jeremy, absolutely needs to be centered in our, in our sites. Don, talking about breaking rules, you're a physician, maybe the nation's leading health policy expert. And then you decide to run for governor of Massachusetts. What made you run? What was your platform? Would it have worked? Uh, the experience of working in the administration, uh, President Obama's administration, uh, was uh, instructive and, and, and uh, inspiring for me. Um, it was very hard. The, the, the contention in Washington, the lack of civility, the inability to have rational conversation across boundaries, that's frustrating. The lying was frustrating. But the general ability to work with government constructively using the skills I have in improvement was the highlight of my career. Uh, I, with CMS, I was able to bring in training for the agency on quality improvement. I was able to bring patients and families and clinicians into the building and, and start to listen to them differently, 
we were able to have launch a replica of the 100,000 Lives campaign, a partnership for patients that was aiming on patient aiming at patient safety improvements that, that was very successful. Um, so despite all the political obstacles and, and misbehavior, the opera, I could see how, gov how what government really can do uh, for people, especially the people it's there to, to protect, the um, children and the elders and, and people with disabilities. So I was, I was very inspired by that. And when I left Washington, I left it reluctantly, the Republicans refused to confirm me after President Obama's um, uh, recess nomination of me. So I, by the, constitutionally, I was, I was the administrator fully empowered, but I had to leave after uh, 18 months or so because that's when the, the uh, clock ran out on my recess appointment. Uh, but I, I, I thought it was amazing. Uh, so when I came back to Massachusetts, um, what I began to feel was we, we, the country needs confidence. It needs buoyancy. We need to see success instead of wringing our hands about all these failures. To do that, we have to, we have to be together and we have to use government. Government's not the only answer, but it's part of the answer. My training and my background is as an executive. The governorship was open and I decided to go for it to see if I could possibly get into a position to, to create an example for the country of improvement uh, as a theme in government across all sectors. I also believe thoroughly in the multi-sectoral view of health. And I knew that as governor, I could begin to insist on cooperation among agencies, all of which affect health and well-being. That's what I saw in Sweden. We kind of, we were, everyone's health is a shared responsibility. It was an amazing experience. It did validate for me the good, the good soul of the, uh, of the Commonwealth, the, the, the voices of communities of people care for each other. They care about each other. I didn't win. I wish I had. Could I have been successful? I don't know. It wouldn't have been easy, but um, I, I, I think, yes, I think that a leader that can pull disparate elements together and say, we're a team. We've got to do this together. There are people depend on us. I mean, the voice of the people into the room that use systematic improvement methods and science has a, has a, good, a good shot at success. So I know I'm not sure, but I, I would have loved the chance. Final question, Don. One thing I've learned about rule breakers this season is that for every rule they've broken, there are five more that they're ready to tackle. What's next for you? The boundary that I'm running at now is the boundary between health and healthcare. Our earlier conversation about what I would call the confiscation of resources by the by the technical system, which is a good system. It's trying hard. I know that, but it it's adopted a level of entitlement to resources without attention to waste and the rules that should be broken that you're talking about, Robbie. And it's not okay. It's not okay. It means uh, it means our our schools are starved. Our 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 uh, elders are lonely. Our our uh, our kids are not getting a fair shot in stressed environments. Uh, it means our, um, you know, our infrastructures upon which healthy communities depend are all threatened. And that's that, and healthcare is a generator of that. It's a cause of that. And so my latest <laughs> windmill that I'm trying to tilt at is, can we please rebalance? We need to get resources to the aspects of our communities that actually produce health, even while we do all the surgery that matters. 
but we've got to be more disciplined about making sure that every dollar we spend in healthcare helps health and, and every dollar we waste is recovered and reallocated to the vulnerable parts of society that are currently starved by, a, by an, over, an overgrown healthcare system. I, I don't think that's a battle it's easy to win. As I said earlier, the incumbencies are very strong, but we need to have that fight. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm remaining a technician, but remain also political. I also think, Robbie, that's a global issue, not just a domestic one. That uh, I can't see that the responsibility to help disadvantaged population stops at our borders. Uh, there are there are billions who need help, and um, I think we need to help them. It, part of that is climate change. My wife, that's my wife's area. And uh, so another aspect of kind of rebalancing is to get, try to do something to own up to what we're doing to this planet because it will come back, um, it will come back to haunt us. So that's, that's the field of engagement I'm in right now and uh, won't stop. My view is that clinicians are at the heart scientists and scientists need to be driven by evidence and that if we could acknowledge the evidence that exists about the futility and relative impotence of so many of the things that we do, that that would be a good place that rather than starting with how do you take money out of a system or starting with the fact that somehow people are not acting appropriately, that we begin with saying, what does the science say and how can we follow the science? And I believe like yourself that there's enough waste generated by actions that we take that rather than improving lives actually compromise them. And that if we could just stop doing the things that both harm patients directly, the patient safety work you've done, but also harm them by over-treatment in ways that inflict pain and suffering and don't prolong a positive life for them or their relationships with their loved ones that we all of a sudden have the dollars that we could then invest. And I look forward to the conversation about how should we better invest these dollars to maximally improve people's health, whether it be in better nutrition, whether it is in better communities, whether it is in better exercise opportunities, wherever it might be, I want to have that conversation about how to reuse that money in order to improve the health of our nation. As you know, Sidney Garfield, who founded the Permanent Medical Group, would say, we don't need a sick system, we need a healthy system. And I think you and I both concur around that. We do, Robbie. Um, you know, there's a leadership seat that's empty right now. To, to make the case you just made. And in our dreams, imagine that the uh, clinician community, I think it's doctors and nurses, come together with, with, a, with a voice, not of self-interest, but of investment in the well-being of the community. Uh, if we ever could find the platform and the voice to do that and, and, the, and the generosity and really give up some of the habits we've had of just you know, seeking more and more and more for ourselves, the seat's available, and I think the public would breathe a sigh of relief to have a clinical community that talked about what you just said, about getting 
resources to where the need really is. Uh, so I won't stop dreaming. Don, thank you so much for being on our show today. <clears throat> Any listener who believes that change is not possible, all they need to do is think about all that you've accomplished across your career, and I am certain that the best is still to come. Thank you, Robbie, and thanks for your leadership. It's, uh, I'm proud to have you as a friend, and thanks, Jeremy. Robbie, what do you think about what Dr. Berwick said? Jeremy, Don is one of the smartest, most articulate healthcare leaders I know. He's always a decade ahead of everyone else. Breaking the rules to me is about the truth, and Don tells it like it is. In my training, I learned that the American healthcare system is the best in the world, that it's the safest, that it treats every patient the same, that doctors only do what's in the best interest of patients, and that all of the problems come from regulators, the government, insurers, etc. Don, across his career, has challenged and debunked all of these rules and myths. And yet, he recognizes how hard physicians work often at personal sacrifice and expense. He sees being a doctor and working in medicine as the highest of callings. You know, I wish he had won the election in Massachusetts. It would have been fascinating to see what he could have accomplished. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHCPodcast. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.